0: Well, a personal confession from me, that is that in chapel, when the Bible's being read, I don't normally open my Bible, because I pay better attention to the Bible as I listen to it, because it's so well read. But that actually doesn't work with Proverbs. It's not because of Jess's reading this morning, it's It's because the Proverbs have gem after gem after gem. Every sentence is full of great things to say and they're not always connected. And so I find it almost impossible to listen to Proverbs. I've actually got to follow along with it. Um, And so as I listen, as I engage with the Bible readings, it's different for Proverbs than for other things. And so it is, I think, with preaching Proverbs as well. And so that's why I've decided to take a leaf out of David Honey's book and preach a sermon from our Proverbs reading today. Proverbs, as you're aware, is not narrative, it's not proposition, it's wisdom. And wisdom is good advice on the best ways to behave. But as you engage and take on board that advice, what it does is shape the way that you think. It enables you to improve the choices for godliness in the future. It actually makes you wise. But as Jess was reading today and as we've been reading our way through it, each verse of Proverbs drips with such wisdom. And so I am often left asking the question, why is it that these Proverbs and the wisdom from it just don't stick? Why do people hear it but just ignore it? Why do I hear it and just ignore it? Because we try really hard to understand and to exegete the scriptures rightly. We toil to communicate them well. We pray that God will be glorified in the lives that of the people that we are sent to serve. And yet, change is so elusive. And I think I've got at least a piece of the answer to why that is the case, why we hear things and don't enact it. It's because there is almost always something good in the alternative to heeding the wisdom of God. We're not generally so silly as to follow things that have absolutely no value, that only have a downside. Even adultery, which is spoken of here and spoken of so commonly in the Proverbs, so condemned everywhere, it actually has the lure of a moment of gratification. Sure, there is such misery that follows it, but it's that moment of gratification that makes you think, I'll oh, go down this pathway. And that's almost always the case of the allure. It's that scrap of truth that provides the opportunity for inattention on our behalf, to not heed carefully the words that come here. And in the devil's hands, it's actually enough to displace trusting in God's good word. And so, here in today's reading from Proverbs, I just want to look at two of the 11 wise, wise sayings, and they are wise sayings about wine. Verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your mind on the right course. Don't associate with those who drink much, too much wine or those who gorge themselves on meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. This warning could not be clearer. It is beware of wine and beware of drunkenness. But here is that glimmer of truth, wine is alluring. Now I've got to admit to you I don't drink alcohol so this doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but verse 31, don't gaze at wine because it's red, because it gleams in the cup and it goes down smoothly. You see, here is the allure of it. The color looks good. It glistens in the glass and you can taste the woody or whatever other flavours are meant to make it smooth. (laughs) Wine is meant to be appealing and it is appealing. And wine is the good gift of God. Psalm 104.15, God makes wine to gladden the hearts of men. Zechariah 10.7, Ephraim's heart shall be glad as with wine. 1 Timothy 5.23, stop drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And, of course, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything that God has created is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, I'm sure many of you experience the benefits of wine, the blessings of it, but some people will use the benefits and the blessings of it to justify excess. That is, to draw a universal and one-sided conclusion about wine. That is, we don't need to worry about it. And so that's actually what we've seen, over, sadly, over these last couple of weeks. With the, with the referendum, it's always one side or the other, not being able to see what's going on in the other. And what's going on in Gaza, the same sort of thing time and time again. And so it is with alcohol. People will say alcohol is good, it's fine, there is no reason to warn against it. When was the last time you heard a sermon about the dangers of alcohol? Today, in our country, they're talking about putting warning labels on alcohol. Society knows the issues of alcohol abuse, but we avert our gaze. And so listen to what the wise man says, verse 20. Don't associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. They'll become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. Here is excess, here is too much. It's seductive, is wine, and it leads to your destruction. The beautiful red colour, the gleaming liquid, the smooth taste that the wise man speaks about. So seductive, so enticing. It was interesting, as I was trying to find an image to display on this screen, every one of them that displayed a drunk person had everybody beautifully clothed. This is the the worst clothing that I could find. (laughs) But don't be deceived. Hear the words of the Proverbs writer. It will lead you to rags. That is the reality. Now, if you asked anybody if they would want to choose poverty, if their desire was to be restricted to wearing rags, no one will do it. But there are people who are taken down this pathway because of that allure. And so we don't speak about alcohol abuse because it's it's acceptable. Those pillars of our society of morality and truth, the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald, they have wine clubs. Every week there are full page ads about their wine clubs. As you read both of those magazines, they'll tell you about the different wines, the taste of them, the colour of them, all of that sort of stuff. And if you are mature, if you are elegant, if you are suave, then you'll know these things. Uh, Just today, as I was driving in, I I heard on the radio that there's been a report published that hepatitis and liver failure has increased fourfold in women and twofold in men since the beginning and because of the pandemic. That's alcohol abuse for you. As our world is in desperate disarray, people have turned to alcohol and this fourfold increase has occurred. Verse 32, in the end, it bites like a snake, it stings like a viper. Sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Good for food, attractive to the eye, useful for gaining wisdom, said the serpent. That's what alcohol abuse does too. And all through the scriptures, drunkenness is used as an image of judgment. Psalm 60, verse 3. God, you have made your people suffer hardship. You've given us wine to drink that's made us stagger. Psalm 75, verse 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, a wine that is full with blended spices, and he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth will drink it, draining it to the dregs. Proverbs 4:17. They eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. Now, I'm talking about wine this morning, but the same is true of all God's good creation in the way that in our hands we can distort it and abuse it and turn it into addiction. Medications, social media, gambling, video games, gastronomy while the, the Proverbs rise talking about wine, it's true of all addictions. I would have thought that these verses are enough to make us think through our attitude of what, uh, to wine and whether we should preach on it or not. But there is a deeper, more important issue that drives abuse of alcohol that we must address. So as I've been thinking about the allure of wine over this week, I came across a word that was new to me. You probably all know it, but it was new to me. It's the word anui. You know it? No, I I didn't either. (laughs) Uh, So I looked up the definition. Uh, It's the feeling of listlessness, weariness, boredom, discontent and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation and excitement. I then looked at the Poulos Dictionary and I describe it as the blahs. (laughs) The reason for our anui is that we are not as we are intended to be We're not fit for purpose, and this anui that we feel is actually part of God's kind warning to us to wake us up, to seek what gives meaning to life. Remember yesterday we recited Psalm 19 together, where in Psalm 19 you've got those descriptions of the word of God and the benefit of the word of God. The instruction of the Lord, says Psalm 19, is perfect. It renews one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. It makes the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord's radiant. It makes the eyes light up. All of these great promises of God that can overcome our ennui, but instead of turning to the word of God, we use wine and our destructions and our addictions to cover it. So Psalm 19, sorry, Proverbs 19, verse 33... Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. That is, alcohol dulls the pain of anui. Nui. Verse 34, you'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on top of a ship's mast. Sure, you'll be rocked to sleep, but it's a dangerous place to be. Verse 35, they struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I don't know it. You are soothed, but there is hurt in it. And then it finishes, When will I wake up? When I wake up, I will look for another drink. Alcohol becomes all-consuming. That's what wine does. It comforts you like a sleeping baby, but it's a false safety. You feel no pain, but it covers our distress. And are we as shepherds culpable for not speaking up against this? But before I conclude, I do want to say that to warn people is not enough. I don't want our sermons just to be warning, 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 because the seduction and addiction and its momentary benefits of alcohol are too strongly ingrained in our culture to ever change people. And as I do it, even to you this morning, I'm probably sounding like a wowser. Uh, By the way, wowser is a a word that was coined in Australia a century and a half ago. It was for people who saw the destruction of alcohol, the destruction of families, and they spoke against it and tried to get prohibition, and they were called wowsers for it. But our responsibility is to warn, but there is a greater power than warning at work. Here's a little thought experiment for you. Imagine you, you were taken into a lavishly appointed lab equipped with every conceivable technological apparatus. And you're given a glass flask and asked to remove all of the air from it. How will you do it? How will you complete the, cu- the task? Find exotic pumps? Find chemicals that can suck the air or something? Here's the easiest way to empty the flask of air. Fill it with water. The best way to evacuate a container of what it holds... Is to fill it with something else. And so if all we do is warn people, we're in danger of what Jesus warned us of in Matthew chapter 12. If an unclean spirit is expelled and nothing replaces it, the final state is worse than the original. That is, anui is like the flask. That is, if we just speak against the alcohol and remove that, something else will fill it up. We need to fill it up with something that is much, much better. And what is it then, what does the word of God tell us that is much, much better than alcohol? You'll, you'll, you can probably think of all different parts of the Bible to go to. Uh, I'm going to go to the seven I am statements in John's Gospel. I know Tom but will probably can correct me later on, but I want to quickly close by just thinking about them, just a sentence really about each of them. You know, the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I think that is lost on us because we have Woolworths and credit cards and so acquiring bread is easy. But in the ancient world, you spent your whole day making bread and after the toil of the day was over, you sat down and you ate it. You could taste the value of it in your mouth and you could feel the nourishment of your body. And Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Taste it and you're nourished for eternity. What is better than that? Well, I'll tell you something that's better than that. Jesus goes on to say, If you come to me, you'll never go hungry. And if you believe in me, you'll never be thirsty. With Jesus, you will never be dissatisfied, never turned away. I am the light of the world. John 8:12. Again, that's lost on us uh, because we have light all around us. I actually went down a coal mine many years ago and they made us turn our lamps off. And it is absolutely pitch black. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And we noticed that even those little pebbles on the ground in the coal mine, we are in danger of tripping over. But after about 30 or 60 seconds of not having our lights on, we actually couldn't even stand up because you can't tell which way is up unless you've got other... And so we were stumbling. And that is the world in which we live. It's a world of darkness where we're constantly beset by the changes and chances of this fleeting world. And to hear, come to me, the light of the world. Here in our world that is filled with anui, here in Jesus you find illumination. Only in him is safety, navigation and war. I am the door, John 10 verse 9. Doors are important when walls... Yeah, I know, we are wondering what that second one's about. Walls are important... Uh, sorry, doors are important when walls are impenetrable... Now, the book there on the right-hand side, there's one we used to read to our kids. We're going on a bear hunt. Many of you have got kids and you know this. You know, so the family that goes on the bear front, they keep meeting these obstacles and there's that refrain, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we can't go around it, we have to go through it. That refrain goes on after obstacle after obstacle, the rivers, the forest, the walls, because you've got to be able to get through it. And the only way to get through it is with a door and that's what Jesus is, because the wall of our separation from God is impenetrable. Uh, We are separated from eternity, from God, from peace, from fellowship. We are separated from all those deepest longings of our hearts. And Jesus is the means, the only means of access. When confronted with what looks like that impossible barrier between us and God, we don't need to worry about trying to scale the wall because that's in vain. We don't need to turn away in despair because we can't get through. We don't need to reset our mental models because we, because we can't get through. We just say, I can't access it, so I'll do something else. Jesus is the door, and the door is always ajar to those who come to him. I'm the Good Shepherd, chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Isn't that lovely? It's an image of care. The care for, of one for those that are less than he is. But he goes further. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I've got to say, that is nonsense. That's unthinkable. Yesterday I was walking out to the car and I saw a a little possum on our nature strip. It's one that I know because it has this beautiful red-coloured fur. And I've watched it since it was a baby, so I know it's a year old. Um, (laughs) But uh, the... uh, I saw it during the daytime because it was dead on the nature strip. I was sad from that, but it never for a moment occurred to me that I would surrender my life for this possum. But that's what Jesus does. God, the Son, who spoke creation into existence, surrenders his life in the most horrible of ways for his sheep. The unthinkable has occurred, I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection, of the life, 1125. Every now and then, when I get morose or face up to my morality, death scares me. I can't imagine no longer talking. I can't imagine not being here. All that I know now is over, is no more. And what do you face? Jesus is the resurrection. You see, rather than my mortality being the end of things, it's the doorway to glory. And it's not just living forever, that's a quantity, but it's the doorway to life. That's quality. I am the resurrection and the life. And no matter how good this life has been, it can never be termed life. What the resurrection holds is life. So when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave... Then with the nobler, sweetest song, I'll sing your power to save. I am the way, the truth and the life. Way, truth, life. There are so many people who claim to be experts who say, we know the way. We will optimise what you need to do and we will help you to implement it. But how do you know the way they want to take you to is the right way? Jesus the way, Jesus is the truth. That is, where he is taking you is the right place to go to. None of our experts can claim that. And when he takes you to that right place, which is the place of truth, what you find there is life. In a world that yearns for the way but doesn't know it. In a society that claims to treasure truth but doesn't seek it because it's so elusive. In a world that wants life but can't find it. Jesus, the way, the truth and the life. I am the vine, finally, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. And we are the branches. Here is the one who rules and controls and positions every molecule in this universe at this moment and in every moment of the universe's history. Claims to be intimately connected with you and me His manufactured creatures of dust. He, I am the vine, you are the branches. The DNA of Jesus, the one who holds everything, is shared with us. And through my clogged and ever more clogging veins runs his life. Here, the perfect eternal one, in a way that can only be symbolised by images, really, because our minds can't grab it, this eternal perfect one chooses to be united with that which is mortal. What an unspeakable honour that is. So the seven short I am statements. Isn't that better than the glistening red and shimmering liquid and the smooth taste in the mouth of wine? Why would anybody... Go to alcohol, that though it dulls pain, is no antidote to annuity. To annuity, when the Lord Jesus Christ offers all of this.